Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. Today, I have the pleasure of announcing a new series of special episodes we're calling Rehearings. These episodes will air on those weeks when we don't have a usual episode because the Supreme Court is not hearing arguments or issuing opinions. For that reason, these episodes won't feature any commentary or trivia from Zach and me, but instead they'll re-air some of our favorite interviews from the past. For our first Rehearings episode, we've chosen to air the first interview I ever conducted with Judge Marty Feldman. I thought it especially fitting to re-air Judge Feldman's interview as a tribute to him after he passed away unexpectedly last year. So, without further ado, here is the late, great, and dearly missed Judge Marty Feldman. Judge, I'd love to talk about uh, your legal career. Was law school always uh, in the cards for you? Did you always know that was your plan? No, no, I'm uh, I'm a complete misfit. I... Um... I I graduated from high school in in uh, Clayton, Missouri, when I was seventeen, and I came to Tulane thinking that I wanted to be uh, an archaeologist and a linguist. And in fact, to this day, I still read archaeology and biblical archaeology uh, as sort of a hobby. But I uh, I'm also not given to great uh, dexterity. And I realized early on that if I were out on a dig, I would uh, come upon uh, Lucy. I don't know if you know, Lucy is the skeleton that put uh, Homo sapiens back about 4 million years. That's right. Uh, I remember that. Yeah. Well, I jokingly knew that I would come upon Lucy and step on her skeleton and crush her (laughs) and and so in the uh, in my well I guess well I grad I finished college in th- in 3 years but in my in my I guess the second half of my second year I decided I didn't want to be an archaeologist I shouldn't be an archaeologist languages I was good at and I stayed with languages but um, I decided I wanted to be a poet and so I switched my major to English literature. And um, I managed to write a lot of poems. And I even got one published in a magazine that promptly went bankrupt. <laughs> T- tell me about your interest in poetry. Are there subjects in particular that interest you? Uh, laughing at society. Um, I've, I've always... I've always had a, a kind of a sense of irony about uh, the hypocrisy of people. So I'm, in fact, uh, years later, the poem that got published uh, is called "They Killed Cock Robin," and Tell it's me about about it. it's about empty-headed uh, people, you know, at cocktail parties and who stand for nothing important. Well, a friend of mine in New York belongs to a club of billionaires and uh, he found out about this poem and this club has an annual black tie dinner in New York 
And so they invited me to come up and read the poem, <laughs> which I did. Uh, but I happened to look up in the midst of reading the poem, and they were kind of frowning. <laughs> and I thought to my, I thought to myself, oh, they must not uh, be very impressed. And then it dawned on me, the poem was about them. Right, they're your target audience. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it's called They Killed Cockroach. At any rate, I, I decided I wanted to be a poet. And uh, now I'm finished uh, with school. I have a, um, uh, a major in English, a minor in uh, Spanish, uh, several years of Latin, and an awareness that I was not destined to ever become an, ar an archaeologist, even though I'm still interested in it. And my college roommate, who to this day I have remained in touch with, was go on his way to med school. And I asked him, uh, Mike, what am I going to do with my life? I'm 19 <laughs> years old. And he said, quote, uh, I don't know, Marty, I think maybe you ought to go to law school. And I asked him why. And he said, I don't know, I think you just look like a lawyer. And I can tell you, I can tell you at this, at that very moment, I walked in front of a mirror, I looked at myself in the mirror, and I can tell you to this day what I was wearing uh, when I decided I was gonna become a lawyer. And I oh. went over to Tulane and got accepted, and. Now you know the rest of the story. So, did you agree with him? Did did you look like a lawyer, or was he was he insulting oh, you? I, I can tell you what I was wearing, but I don't know if I look. I guess I did. I, I had on a a uh, white Brooks Brothers uh, shirt, a a, a, a a gray herringbone jacket, and uh, a very uh, and uh, charcoal gray trousers. It, you know, it was the old preppy days. <laughs> so I, I I guess I. I guess I kind of agreed, but, but the more important part of the story is is that uh, from the from day one in in contracts class, uh, I fell in love with the study of law, uh, and uh, I never looked back. I've always said I've never worked a day in my life. That is a great thing, and there are some people who find that, and I'm curious. I, I, I mean, my, in my mind, the writing of poetry and that create creativity. It doesn't really look like legal writing to some point, to some degree. Do you find that judicial writing satisfies that creative writing urge? No. Uh, I've always said that uh, the only people who are worse butchers of the mother tongue than doctors are lawyers and judges. <laughs> so after law school, you clerked for Judge John Minor Wisdom, right? I was his first law clerk. Um, I I didn't know uh, what I was going to do. I had uh, I had been had interviewed um, for a position in the legal department of a company, a tiny company then. It's now Freeport McMoran, and I knew I wasn't cut out to be a, a, a you know punch a time clock and be a company guy. Um, I'd interviewed with uh, three or four different law firms, but I just, I, and frankly, I wasn't sure I was going to stay in New Orleans. I had, off, I had a job offered from the uh, 
the, at the time, the honors recruitment program at Justice Department in D.C. And I was kind of interested in that, but I had a little MG and I didn't know how I was going to get all my clothes in my MG and drive to Washington. So I didn't take that. And I had been in uh, young rep- college Republican pol- politics. And at the time, Judge Wisdom was was then in private practice. And he was a very famous, very famous uh, antitrust lawyer. And he was also a very famous Republican because there weren't many in the South. Mm-hmm. And he had he had been a, a very close friend of President Eisenhower's. And I had kind of come across Judge Wisdom as a college Republican and liked him. And I heard that he had been... Um, appointed by Eisenhower. And so I applied and, and interviewed. Matter of fact, I was 20 minutes late because I got caught in a rainstorm <laughs> with my top down on my little MG. And uh, I thought, oh my God, he's, he's not even going to let me in. But we hit it off. And I, I think he kind of liked the fact that I was dripping wet and 20 minutes late. <laughs> Judge hit the judge had a great sense of life and a great sense of humor. At any rate, he, um, uh, he offered me the position and I became his first law clerk. And it was, uh, it was, a, it was God's blessing because he was, was and still is to this day, like, like uh, my father, closer uh, than my father. So he, I, I he trust was, that was, he was one. There was a close mentor-mentee relationship. Very, yes. We were, every um, every morning I would go to his house, pick him up in my little MG. Uh, his wife would make us breakfast, and then we'd go to work. And it was uh, it was a very exciting time for a young kid like me because I was his law clerk during the Brown versus Board of Education integration days by the lower courts. Um, And the Fifth Circuit was probably had the heaviest docket uh, because it it spanned from Florida to Texas at the time. Mm -hmm. And Judge Wisdom made quite a name for himself working on those cases. Can you tell me about that? Yes. uh, uh, He... uh, he was not. Uh, he, uh, he, this is going to sound strange. He had. I don't. I don't think he ever had a social philosophy, which led him to the results that he he came to. He was uh, born an aristocrat of a of a, a, an old Virginia family. Uh, that dated back to the 18th century. Um, he went to Washington and Lee, uh, when, uh, and his father went to Washington and Lee uh, under when Robert E. Lee was president of Washington and Lee. So uh, I never had the sense that he was uh, maybe like some of the judges today, unfortunately, uh, an advocate personally for one mm-hmm. point of view or another. He simply decided those cases on the basis of what he thought was fair and reasonable and what was faithful to Brown versus the Board of Education. 
he had a, he got a lot of static for it. And of course, I got a lot of static because I had been his law clerk uh, during that time. Um, a lot a lot of people in the Republican Party were kind of suspicious of me because I had clerked for him. Oh, that's interesting. Did um, did his philosophy end up um, affecting the way you decide cases? Do you find that you follow in his footsteps? Have you reinvented or or changed how he did things? Uh, the only the only thing that I do, which is something he did, and I hope I hope I'm not the only one, but uh, is I I do what is fair and impartial. And he had a sense of strong impartiality. And um, I try to I try to to live that. How do you when a case presents an issue that's very partisan or involves a a hot political issue? How do you uh, stay impartial? How do you avoid subconsciously maybe getting pulled into the political uh, whirlwind around a case. I have a lovely study here at my very old house. And in fact, I'm in the study right now. And uh, alone at night is when I write all my opinions. Um, I've had the same-sex marriage a, a case before Obergefell. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I'd probably be very get a lot of criticism for it, but I I felt it was fair and impartial, and it was what uh, Justice Kennedy and Justice Roberts had written before me. Um, Two years after I was appointed, um, I had a very famous high-profile case involving supposedly the KGB and a Russian um, uh, grain ship here in the port of New Orleans. I I the I ruled against uh, Ronald Reagan, the president who appointed me. Um, got a lot of got a lot of criticism for that. Um, held Barack Obama, the Secretary of the Interior, in contempt of court. Wow. Uh, got a lot of got a lot of uh, of criticism for that. Uh, and um, I I just. I'd like to think that I have the same respect for the robe mm-hmm. that Judge Wisdom taught me to have, and that's how I approach cases. I I try never to think about the consequences to me personally, and I think most people would agree. If you ask them, they would agree with that. Mm-hmm. That must be difficult when you're under a lot of pressure, especially media scrutiny, to... Yeah. Well, um, if I had, um, if I didn't uh, want that kind of life, I wouldn't wear a robe to work. That's fair. And speaking of robes, I've heard, is it true you have uh, Judge Wisdom's robe? It hangs in your chambers. Is that right? I, I not only, I not only have his robe in my chambers. Uh, when I took the oath, he swore me in. Huh. He took his his robe off of himself, and he put his robe on me. Wow, what a moment. Many years later, one of my closest personal friends is Judge Pryor from the 11th Circuit. Is that Bill he Pryor? Also clerked, 
Bill, yes. <laughs> he also clerked for Judge Wisdom. When he finally got a Senate a hearing and got confirmed, I flew to Atlanta and swore him into the 11th Circuit, and I swore him in wearing Judge Wisdom's robe. Wow. What a great story. You were also very close friends with Justice Scalia. Is that right? Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia was my my closest friend of 35 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how did you... Every day. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I can only imagine. I, 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 I've never met the man, but I have heard that he was the sort of person you can the, never forget. He was the best. He was a... An incredible friend, an incredible human being, and a uh, one of the one of the most uh, impressive minds I have ever uh, encountered. We met here at my house. Um, he was on the D.C. Court of Appeals. He'd been on the D.C. Court of Appeals for about a year and a half. In uh, April of '84, I was on the district bench. I'd been appointed it, uh, in November of '83. And um, my late wife and I were giving a, a, a party for a, a lecture series that Tulane uh, did every year. They, they might still do it. I don't know. But we were very involved with it uh, when I was a brand new judge. And um, that particular uh, year, eight, in 1984, the, the um, panelists, were Arthur Miller, the law professor, mm-hmm. Fred Friendly, the chairman of CBS, and Antonin Scalia on the D.C. Court of Appeals. Tulane asked uh, my late wife and me to give the opening party uh, for the the, uh, the for these three guys. Um, well, I'm not. Uh, people will probably tell you that I'm not the most sociable person and I don't like crowds. There were about 50 people here and I went out on the porch. Justice Scalia or judge then judge Scalia hadn't, hadn't shown up yet. And so I went out on the porch of my house and this little beat up car, I guess a rent rental car pulled up and parked in front of my house. And this little guy got out and waddled up to the front porch (laughs) and his first, my first words were Judge Scalia, and he looked at me and he said, Judge Feldman, and it was love at first sight. <laughs> we came into, literally, we came into the house, we went off into a corner. I didn't, I, I hardly talked with anybody else that night. My wife wanted to kill me. And <laughs> from, and then, of course, uh, two years later, he went, uh, he went on the Supreme Court. I'm, I'm going to tell you, he might not want me to do this, but I'm going to tell you a story about my former law clerk, Ajit Pai. Please. Now chairman of the Federal, Federal Communications Commission. <laughs> when, uh, when, when Justice Scalia went to the Supreme Court from the D.C. Circuit, this was in the, the, the back when uh, I don't even think computers were in existence. Uh, if they were, they were brand new. And Nino and I would write back and forth to each other. And whenever, and Ajit was my law clerk, one of my law clerks then. And whenever a an envelope from Ju- Justice Scalia from the Supreme Court came to Chambers, Ajit would 
unknown to me, Ajit would go to my secretary and ask her to save the envelope for him after I opened the envelope and took the letter out. <laughs> Do you know what he did with him? No, I have no idea. I have <laughs> none whatsoever. But but uh, Nino and I, uh, Nino and I were were the we were closest the close closest of friends for thirty five years. We we talked oh I don't know two or three times a month, and uh, we traveled together. Uh, he stayed here at my house when uh, he loved New Orleans. Whenever he and Maureen came came to New Orleans, they stayed with me. And uh, it was just one of those, uh, one of those very, very special uh, relationships. Do you have a favorite memory or a, a favorite story? Yes. <laughs> well, they're, they're, I guess they're two related stories. Uh, Eleven years ago, yesterday, uh, I was baptized, and he was my godfather, and. Uh, um, when I first decided, we we talked all the time about this. It wasn't anything new to him, but I finally decided I was going to do it. And I called him and I asked him to be my godfather. And the first words out of his mouth were, God damn you, Marty. And I thought, <laughs> what? 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 Wait, where is that coming from? God damn you, Marty. What do you mean? He said, I've been... I've been trying all my life to get into heaven, and you're going to slip right in ahead of me. <laughs> and the, the other, the other, the other half of that story, you have to back up uh, several years before I had actually decided to study and be baptized. Okay. Nino was Nino loved hunting and fishing, and he had a. Uh, he had a very close friend here. In fact, the brother of the Walking Dead nun, Sister Prejean. Uh, her brother, Louis Prejean, was Nino's big hunting buddy. And one one year, um, I was in Chambers, and I think it was still in the late 80s. And he called me. And he said, look, I'm going hunting or fishing, whichever. With Lewis, I'm here in Louisiana, but uh, court's in recess. I've got to go back to Washington uh, for court, so I'm not going to get to come to New Orleans to, uh, to visit and stay with you, but I just wanted to call and say hello, to which I said, Nino, you really like all that stuff? <laughs> he said, what do you mean? I said, all the mosquitoes and the crocodiles and the alligators and the snakes and the flies and the sun. You like all that? And there was this silence. And then he said, quote, Marty, that is so Jewish. And he hung up on me. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you convert from um, Judaism to Catholicism? What was the impetus behind that? Uh, I, I think uh, the good Lord was bringing me along ever since I was a kid. I can, I used to, uh, I used to go to midnight mass when I was in high school with friends. I can still smell the candles at St. Louis Cathedral mm. in St. Louis. And so when I came to school, I, I uh, basically went would go to mass with friends, 
And um, the first time I decided to take instructions uh, was in 1954. I was I was 20, and okay. I went to see a priest. Uh, I went to see a priest about that, and um, but of course the 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 gin bottle overruled the priest, and so it took um, uh, about 50 years more before I I finally went back. Sorry, did you say the gin bottle? Yeah, I lived in New Orleans. I was a 20-year-old in law school in New Orleans. I was I was more interested in going to Bourbon Street than than in, <laughs> in than in taking instructions. But but the first time I I thought seriously, I was 20 years old. Okay, and was your friendship with Scalia part of that process? Very definitely. We used to talk about it all the time. He sat here in my study with me. Uh, we would, uh, he would, he introduced me to C.S. Lewis mm. and um, uh, just, and then, you know, whenever I was with them, if they were here in New Orleans or if I was in um, Washington or if I was at their beach house at the Outer Banks, uh, we always went to mass together. Of uh, C.S. Lewis's books, which one or ones did you find most instrumental in your uh, conversion? Well, there are three, actually, but uh, it, for different reasons. Um, my all-time favorite is Screw Tape Letters, because I, I think it, it, uh, it laughs at the frailty of human beings, and, and that's why I wrote They Killed Cock Robin. <laughs> um, I, I just finished, a, well, the, the, the second one that, that actually he gave me is called Mere Christianity, mm-hmm. which I like. John, I'd love to switch gears uh, for a minute, and I'd uh, talk about uh, some of the things you've done during your career. Um, specifically, you recently completed a seven-year stint on the FISA court. Can you talk to me yeah, a little I bit did. about that experience? Well, it was a great honor. Um, um, it's another Scalia story. One day, uh, he called me out of the blue, and he said, um, you want to be on the FISA court? <laughs> and I said, sure. And the next day, the chief justice called me and I was on the FISA court. And so when I when I went off, when I had my what I jokingly refer to as my non-person uh, lunch, yeah, when you rotate off, the chief has a lunch for the person going off the court. And I've jokingly referred to it as the non-person lunch. You become a non-person again. <laughs> uh, but I but I told him, I said, uh, Chief, I want to thank you for putting me on the court, and I want to thank Nino for giving you my name. <laughs> that's how I, that's how I got on the court, and uh, it was, uh, and I didn't hesitate. I said yes immediately because it, uh, it, uh, I have a sense of duty, and uh, for me, it was just another way to serve my country and to work with, um, with literally some of the greatest. Un, unsung, unknown heroes uh, in our country. Um, judge, uh, and and the judges, the judges who I uh, I I served with um, were the best of the best. Mm. How did being a FISA judge differ from your regular court work? Well, um, you. <laughs> It was rare that you heard both sides of the 
of an issue. <laughs> That's um, interesting. How a, do you make a decision uh, in that case? Well, the the questions, the issues that confront the duty judge. You know, we we sit alone. We don't sit together. Mm-hmm. The only time we even get together is twice a year at uh, semi-annual meetings for briefings and field trips and stuff like that. But we, the only way uh, you know what another judge has done is if uh, a renewal comes up, if something's about to expire and you are now the duty judge and the, the agency involved needs to have the, the, the uh, project extended for another 90 or however many days are allowed by law. So you, you, you don't know, you don't you, you work alone and if somebody's on duty right now, somebody's on duty 24 seven and uh, it, it, you might, it might be in the middle of the night. Um, uh, it, it, it's just hard to say, but it was, uh, there's a staff of uh, around 12 people all with um, intelligence backgrounds and uh, backgrounds in law. Okay. And the, uh, the, the application is, is uh, worked up by them and then it comes to you. And uh, occasionally, uh, occasionally there's an amicus. Um, if, the sitting, if the sitting judge wants an amicus, or if the staff recommend an amicus, who are the amicus? Well, um, there was one uh, when I was involved, and he was uh, he was appointed when Tom Hogan was the presiding judge in D.C. I never knew the guy. I did I had one. Uh, hearing in in uh, technically what they call their courtroom, I had one hearing, but it was just with the Justice Department uh, lawyers and the intelligence uh, people because I was concerned about something and I didn't want to sign off until I uh, was more satisfied. So I never worked with an amicus, but there was one that Judge Hogan named, and I believe I believe it was an ACLU guy, but I never, I never knew him. Now I think there are more than one, but I'm not sure. Without, of course, disclosing any classified info, do you have a reaction to uh, the recent reports about FISA abuse? Well, um, I think it's, I I don't want to minimize it. I, I think it's very serious, but like, like everything else in life, if if there's a bad guy and the bad guy wants to do something bad, um, it, you're going to have a hell of a time trying to stop him. Mm. And the way I view what happened um, is the bad guys wanted to do bad things and they concealed it. I know three of the four. I was not involved. I know three of the four judges. I worked with three of the four judges. And I can tell you they are the best of the best. Mm. And the one I don't know, Judge Conway, uh, comes is, but with a very fine reputation. So uh, all I can think is, sadly, is 
if a bad guy wants to do something bad, he or she is going to find a way to do it. And a bunch of bad guys, disappointingly at the FBI, wanted to do bad things, and they did it, and they hit it. And uh, I, I have never talked with, with any of the four judges or asked them about it. Uh, Rosemary Collier was presiding judge when it happened, and she was the first judge. She uh, entertained the original application. Uh, she's one of my best friends, and I have never said one word to her about it. Mm. So that's all I, you know, I just bad guys doing bad things. And if they want to cover up something, they're going to do it. I know the question you're going <laughs> to ask me, is there a way to change that? The yeah. thing that I fear most, thing that I fear most right now is that Congress is going to tinker with it and uh, weaken it. I, mm. I, I really fear that. I, I, I would just remind everybody that the FISA court was the result of an abuse by the CIA. I don't, I don't know lot. that history. Tell me about that. It, in, uh, it involved, I don't know whether it involved the assassination or the planned assassination of a South American uh, leader. And Frank Church from Idaho, a Democrat, was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And Warren Berger was chief justice of the United States. And Berger came to church with an idea about sticking an independent federal judge in between the executive branch and the intelligence service. We're the only country in the world. England has tried to do it and has not been able to. We are the only country in the world that has an impartial arbiter between the executive branch and the intelligence service. The only country in the world. And, um, and it, it came about uh, when a, uh, I, I, don't, I think Church uncovered it himself. I mean, it was a huge political scandal. Um, and I could be wrong, but I want to say it involved uh, Allende, who was okay. uh, one of the presidents of one of the South American countries at the time. But I would you know, just remind everybody that, that we are the only country in the world that, uh, that has this, this uh, institution that is uh, fair and impartial to the core uh, that sits between the intelligence agencies and the executive branch of government. That's interesting. I'm surprised that nobody else has done so. No, zero. Can it be abused? If, like I said, if, if, if the bad guys want to abuse uh, uh, goodness and righteousness, Mm. they will. Mm. And um, unfortunately, it happened. Um, I, I won't say what I really think of the people who did it, um, but um, you can probably guess. Mm-hmm. Well, Judge, thank you for that insight into the FISA course. I know that's not uh, something that a lot of people have any experience with, and so that's really illuminating. 
In, in our last few minutes, Judge, I would love to ask you one question we ask all of our guests on the show. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Uh, Justice Story, because he, uh, even though he was chief, the first chief justice, he was also a politician. He was secretary of state. And uh, I've often wondered how in the hell he could have ever been a judge when he was so political. Um, so he's one. And, of course, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Um, I have a soft spot in my heart for him. It's quite a, quite a story. Uh, I love Holmes because he always wanted to be a United States district judge. And he always got passed over. And so uh, for him, the booby prize was the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. <laughs> he was on that court for 12 years when Cabot Lodge, then senator and friend of his, uh, called him and said, there was a, would you like to be on the Supreme Court? And until the day he died, Oliver Wendell Holmes, you know, this was when they used to ride circuit and they would sit mm -hmm. as district judges. And Oliver Wendell Holmes and always used to say that the most, uh, the most interesting and most fun in his life of being a, a federal judge was to be a U.S. district judge and hold court. <laughs> and I, that's always that's always touched me that he felt that way, because I feel that way. Well, Judge, it has been such a pleasure to chat, and thank you for uh, taking the time to be with us. I am honored, and I want to compliment all of you who uh, work with uh, in the in the trenches for the Heritage Foundation. I'm uh, I'm a big fan, and of course, I have some great friends there. Thanks very much, Judge. Thank you. Good luck. Well, that's it for Rehearings this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to SCOTUS 101. As usual, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS 101 and email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.